ingenious web of life, some four billion years in the making, tried and true, an endlessly abundant resource for us to learn from. Today we are pulling on one of the threads of this web to be fascinated by what nature and particularly animals use to self-medicate. And we promise, it's an episode entirely without pharmaceutical companies. Animals who self-medicate, using nature to survive. Here today on An Organic Conversation, your show on everything that makes life worth living. I'm Helge Helberg. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. Nature is our best teacher. Life has evolved for some four billion years here on Earth. Four billion years of trying, failing, trying again, and lots of refining to provide the most robust, interconnected network to date. What can we learn from it? We had a great show on biomimicry a few months back with Janine Benyus, a biomimicry expert who looks at life to learn how our human lives can be better, easier, smarter, and more integrated and aligned with what nature teaches us. Today we are speaking about the ingenuity of animals, animals who self-medicate, using nature to survive, our topic today here on An Organic Conversation. And speaking of ecology, we got such a thoughtful message from a listener in Virginia. She is an earth science and oceanography teacher, and she wrote us to tell us that she listens to the podcast on her way to and from work, and that it has inspired a lot of healthy, more sustainable practices in her life, and it's something that she instills in her students as well. So, Ginger, thank you so much for your comment, and we are dedicating this episode of An Organic Conversation to you. It is about animals that self-medicate and the relationship between animals and the ecosystem. We've got a wonderful ecologist coming on to talk to us and it just seemed like the perfect time to give you a shout out for all of the great work that you're doing and how much we appreciate your listenership. And of course, if you have comments or questions, please send them our way, either through Facebook, any of our posts. We read all of your comments and maybe pull them up to be part of the show or at least get back to you right there and then. Um, as others may too, there's now this whole network of people responding to one another with gardening tips, and it's really exciting. That's facebook.com forward slash an organic conversation, or always via email, and that's contact at organicmedianetwork.com. This is An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. And our topic is, yes, animals who self-medicate using nature to survive. But first, we're starting the show off with our weekly update from the world of health and beauty. Sita Rani Palomar and her holistic bite. Well, I saw something that kind of surprised me recently as I was driving, and that was a billboard advertisement for a, a food chain that was boasting bone broths in their soups. And I thought, wow, this health trend has gone mainstream. And for really good reason. And who better than to have Dr. Ed Bowman, founder of Bowman College, who's probably written literally many books on this subject. He's Mr. Bone Broth. I'm he, not sure if he likes mis- the title. Is that his nickname, <laughs> Mr. Know. Bone Broth? But yeah. 
host tons of fasting <laughs> retreats that include broths. And there's so much of this in the curriculum in both the Natural Chef and in the holistic nutrition programs at Bowman College. So we have with us on the phone, Dr. Ed Bowman, to talk about mineral broths and bone broths. Ed, are you with us? Yes, here I am. Hi, here Hi, you Ed. are. <laughs> Welcome. And Good thank you for you. coming back and sharing something that is so timely because it's so immune boosting and many, many other things. Mm-hmm. So why don't you start with mineral and bone broths, which have okay. become very popular. Why are they so good for us? Okay. Well, you said the key word, they're mineral rich. So a, a mineral broth or a vegetable broth is a concoction. And to make it at home, and I encourage everyone to do this, get your largest pot. And if you don't have a big 12-quart pot or larger, that's your Christmas present or holiday <laughs> gift to request. And the vegetable broth, you start with one-third layer of vegetables that are root vegetables. So those are coming in season very nicely in the fall and the winter season. And the nicest one is yams. So when you make a broth with yams, you get an amber sweet flavor. And then you can augment that with turnips or onions or beets or any any good hearty root vegetable, and you put this in an empty pot. You don't put the water in yet. Then you do about a third layer of greens, and it can be the leafy greens, the broccoli family kale, collard-type greens, and then a layer of shiitake mushrooms, if you can get hold of those, with some sea vegetables, and sea vegetables are very high in minerals, and it can be wakame or kombu or tzatziki, whatever whatever organic sea vegetables you can get. And then you fill your pot up to a couple of inches beyond your level of vegetables, and you boil and simmer it. Uh, Once it comes to a boil, you turn it down and let it gently bubble along for four or five hours. And before you're going to strain it, add flax seeds, those nice gelatinous uh, seeds that add a body to your broth. And you don't add salt. You can add spices. You can add ginger or turmeric or uh, oregano, basil, thyme, rosemary, things like that that gives it a nice flavor. And then you strain it and you put it into your jars or something you can freeze, and you have an incredible mineral broth that is quite delicious and good for a morning beverage, an afternoon beverage, an evening beverage, or something to use in a soup or a stew. We call it a mineral broth because that many vegetables, it's usually several pounds of vegetables per person. By the time all these vegetables diffuse their flavors, their phytonutrients, and their minerals into this gorgeous amber. I love that. And it sounds like, you know, when when people build a compost pile of straw and then uh, some wet layer, and that's how you build that in the pot. I love how picturesque you made that with root vegetables first and then layer after Mm -hmm. layer, including the mushrooms. Layer, 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 from the most concentrated to the most kind of, you know, light and flavorful with those herbs and sea vegetables. And you can use peels from onion peels, or, or potato peels or other clean peelings from making vegetables. So when you said compost, this is a way of liquefying those great parts of the food that we want to eat and, and get the most out of. Perfect. So let's talk about bone broth then, because you would mm. put this together differently. It's not like you're cutting up yams and you're cutting up mm-hmm. carrots. And mm-hmm. so what? Mm-hmm. And what is the, what is the bone broth? How do you make it? Okay. 
So bone broth is made out of organic bones. That's the key. And the funny thing is the best bones are the chickens. Oh. So the, one could make a bone broth out of beef or out of lamb or out of pork or out of fish bones. And all these bones have amino acids and they have minerals. So they're really good. It's, it's like a very concentrated part of the animal. But honestly, buying chicken parts, the back, the head, and particularly the feet, chicken feet make the most delicious and nourishing and collagen-enriching broth. So I've seen this broth help people who had soft tissue problems as well as strengthen the immune system. So same concept, you get about five pounds of bones and put them in a 12-quart pot, and you would adjust that to a smaller pot, and then you cover it with a couple of inches of water, and you'd boil and simmer it for 24 to 48 hours. So that's really cooking it slow and extracting all of the, the nutrients out of those bones. Could you do that in a slow cooker instead of doing mm-hmm. it in a, in a stove you top? You can do okay. it in a crock mm-hmm. pot as long as it mm-hmm. boils first. Oh, okay. And do you add Definitely like a, a pinch of vinegar to it to extract? Ah, a tablespoon it? of vinegar. Well, I, a I, Bowman got, graduate. I got that trained. Was I got trained by you when I got my degree <laughs> at Bowman so, College. Yes. So, so the acid is also what pulls out the minerals from these hard bones, these concentrated bones, and and you know you can even make a little eggshell with vinegar in water, and when you add the vinegar to the eggshell, it it pulls the minerals out of the eggshell, and the eggshell changes its its composition, and the water is is full of not only calcium, but silica and boron and other trace elements. So yeah, vinegar is is really helpful to kind of cook this almost to ferment it and, and to facilitate the process of these bones delivering their beautiful nutrients. And the chicken bone broth tastes good. Now, to, to make the flavor a little nicer, people often roast the bones before they cook oh. them. So Fantastic. to do that, you get a stainless steel sheet or a If you have to use aluminum, put parchment on it and put them in the oven at 375 for about 45 minutes. And that kind of adds that that baked, deep, beautiful smell and flavor uh, to your broth. Well, and that's something that I liked about how you how you position like when you first started talking about the mineral broths, as you said, you make this, you divide it into your jars, you can freeze it, you can pull it out and put it in your soups and stews, but you can also drink it. So this is also like as a tea alternative that is really health supportive, immune supportive. It's perfect Mm -hmm. for this time of year. And I think that this is something that, you know, I've had a lot of people ask me, where's the best place to get an organic bone broth right now? You can Mm. certainly find this at some of the mm-hmm. higher quality markets, but it is not as difficult as it seems. And I really appreciate you calling in to tell us how to do it because I know you've been doing it for many years and teaching well, that's decades. My secret. You're giving away my secret <laughs> oh. to eternal life. <laughs> but that's, that's just you, Ed. You, you well, have but, shared but your entire it, life. And we would all be, you know, remarkable. Yes. It, <laughs> would, it would be something, and it enriches the whole system because, again, they're trace minerals and they're amino acids. And then when you make the bone broth, you add a little salt at the end, not during cooking. And then you can also add vegetables and use it in some incredible uh, broths and soup. But I do like it as a a tonic beverage. Sure. Uh, I really like that. And if you even want to add a little ginger to it, it's, 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 it's 
tremendous. Well, you're helping to everyone to uh, live a healthier life, and isn't that the heartbeat of what makes Bowman College so exceptional? It's for all of us to to live a healthier life and have a different relationship to our food. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, you so boiling, much for calling start in. Start boiling some broth. We and will. We will. It with your friends. It makes a great <laughs> holiday beverage. It sure does. Something to keep you healthy throughout the season. So thank you again for sharing with You're us. Welcome. And uh, we'll, we'll have you, you back soon. on. Always a pleasure. Likewise. <laughs> okay, take care. Right. Bye, Ed. Take good bye care. Bye-bye. Bye. You know, that is a good point. This is something that you can make and take to friends, whether they're feeling under the weather or they've been working really hard because they can use it to make soups and stews. Almost like a party theme. You know, you could you could have <laughs> girlfriends over and, and just make, make bone broth uh, or no. boyfriends, whatever. I'm just saying, yeah, yeah, exactly. You can say we have a broth party. That's Sita with her holistic bite. That's Thank you. Ed wow. With the holistic bite. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> This is an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helbert. And I'm Sita Ronnie Palomar. And we'll be right back with more. Stay tuned. Are you a chef, have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, walk right in to Earl's Organic Produce. Anyone can buy directly from us at wholesale prices. You don't have to be a natural food store to enjoy the freshest and most delicious organic produce. We are located on the San Francisco Produce Market at 2101 Gerald Avenue. We look forward to seeing you. Walk-in hours are Monday through Friday throughout the night from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. Minimum purchase is one box or flat, cash or checks only. For more information, visit earlsorganic.com. Fry Vineyards is America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated since 1980. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Fry organic and biodynamic wines include delicious Cabernet Sauvignon, Zinfandel, Syrah, Chardonnay, and Sauvignon Blanc. Fry Vineyards Mendocino County award-winning wines without added sulfites. Available at grocery stores and online at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helber. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Today it's all about nature. Some four billion years in the making. An amazing web of life. And we will be focusing on animals who self-medicate in nature, using nature to survive. That's our feature topic today. And with us on the phone now is Mark Hunter. He's the professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Michigan, who's joining us today from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Mark, do we have you on the phone? Yes, you do. <laughs> it's Welcome great to, the show. to have you. You know, it's really the the red thread of our episode, whether we talk about listening or relationships or even food and cooking and our relationship to that, nature is the container. And we had a great show with Janine Benjes a few months back on biomimicry and what we can learn. And you have such a focused angle and we, we are so intrigued by by your work, working with different species really throughout and observing how animals self-medicate indeed so much to learn from modern medicine really is a science but different species have been intuitively maybe medicating themselves with beneficial plants for generations maybe thousands of years or longer can you give us some examples can you can you dive into that world with us yeah definitely but i like to think of the world that surrounds us all the plants that are out there both on the terrestrial uh, surface of the earth but also underwater as well as part of a great green pharmacy. There's all sorts of interesting chemical compounds in those plants that we exploit, but other animals do as well. And at the moment, our work is focusing on monarch butterflies. 
I think most people are familiar with monarchs because of their wonderful migration. But monarchs have diseases of their own, just like we have diseases. Monarchs have diseases too. And one of them is a protozoan parasite. And that protozoan is actually distantly related to the parasite that gives humans malaria. So it turns out monarchs have this agent of disease. And a female monarch who's infected with it will uh, turn on a behavior, a new kind of behavior, a medication behavior. And she will seek out the most pharmaceutically active plants that she can find, and she'll lay her eggs on those plants. So that when Junior bites its way out of the egg, the first thing it encounters is a nice dose of antibiotic. And that will uh, help to mitigate the effects of the parasite in those offspring. That's so extreme that's almost hard to believe. And I, I, I wonder, of course, how is that communicated? How could the monarch butterfly know that to lay that junior egg into that particular, I think it's a thistle, is that correct? It's milkweed. Milkweed oh, is milkweed. The, the, the only thing that, that uh, monarchs will, will consume. Of course, that's one of the problems as the milkweed populations are in the U.S. decline. Sure. So do the monarch populations. But in this case, you know, there's really two ways to do it. One is learning, and the other is what we call innate behavior. And in this particular case, we know that it has to be innate. It has to be an innate response. And that's because the female lays her eggs, but then she flies away. So she never knows what happens to those eggs. So she makes the intelligent choice, but then she's never around to observe the result of it. So for that kind of behavior to exist, it has to be innate. And so we're looking here at the power of evolution by natural selection. We can imagine that there's variation in behaviors in the monarch population. And this particular behavior is so successful when the monarchs have the parasite that their offspring do better than everybody else's. And so the behavior is passed down from one generation to the next. So when you talk about innate, what can you break that down? Like, when did it come into the awareness of the butterfly? It, uh, have they done it for thousands of years, as far as you possibly know? Is that a really a new behavior, because it's a fairly new parasite? Or like, when, when did a species like that learn at one point to do that? It, it wasn't coincidence, or maybe the junior, who, it was coincidence, and then the junior larvae or butterfly looked around and, and realized, oh, this is milkweed. I'm going to do this now, too. Where does, where does innateness come in? Evolution can actually happen remarkably quickly. One of the things that biologists have learned over the last decade or so is that evolution can take place. We can see evolutionary changes in populations really in quite short periods of time. We used to think in terms of millions of years or certainly thousands of years. But now we can think of it in terms of uh, generations. And so all we really need to understand is that a few generations back, a butterfly that had this behavior as a, a normal part of variation in a natural population, its offspring just did so much better than everybody else's because mom had this behavior. And if that behavior is passed on in the genes, then those offspring will also behave in that way. Of course, we all know that you know dogs eat grass, for example, when they have an upset stomach. Somehow that helps them either to digest it better or to throw up. Where else have you seen or are you seeing behavior like that? Do you have a, a couple more examples? So the fun thing about this is once you start to look for it, <laughs> you see everywhere. it just 
about everywhere. Mm. So probably some of the earliest examples we know of are farmers who noticed that when their sheep had a particular condition called bloat disease, they tended to increase their, their consumption of plants that contain tannins. Now, tannins are those compounds that we use to make the leather in our belts or our shoes a little bit tougher. And it, they, they attack uh, microbes that, that try and eat protein. Well, it turns out that when, when sheep eat tannin-containing plants, it helps the microbes in their gut respond to this bloating disease. So that, that's an early example. But there's lots of, lots of other ones. Some of our favorites, of course, come from primates because they're so like us. And there are primates that will fold up leaves, and rather than chew them, they'll swallow them whole. And if those leaves are hairy, they can almost act like a sandpaper and scrape parasites out of the gut of the primate on the way down. <laughs> now, that's not necessarily a medicine. It's more like a physical response, but it's, but it's quite a nice example. Other chimpanzees, for example, will chew the pith of a, a plant in tropical Africa called Vernonia, and that contains a nice compound that seems to protect them from nematode worms. And so we have this idea that organisms like us do it. But what's really fascinating is when you start to look, there are all sorts of organisms that really don't have the cognitive abilities of, of humans or chimps that do this anyway. And organisms from bees to ants to caterpillars, even fruit flies, you can find medication behaviors in those organisms. It fascinates me to see so many instances of, of creatures who are medicating and that as human beings, our instinct is to go to a doctor and say, I need something for this. Like they're, they're, that behavior or intuition, or whether it's innate or it's learned, that is available to us too. And yet it seems like we've so distanced ourselves from being able to do it. So one of the advantages, of course, is going, of going to a doctor is that when you get that bottle of pills, it tells you about the dose. And, and in many ways, that's one of the most important things is to manage the dose. And, and so there is merit, obviously, in going to a professional and getting somebody to help with the dose of a particular medication. But you're right, we have got rather far removed from an ability to search out new medicines in nature or to understand that other organisms might help us find potential medicines that we hadn't used before. Of course, we're giving medicines to the environment now as well. I'd love to tell you this story, cigarette butts. Now, clearly, cigarettes are not a great medicine. We don't want to encourage anybody to smoke. But cigarette butts contain concentrated doses of nicotine. And would you believe it? There are house sparrows and house finches that incorporate cigarette butts into their nests, unwind that cigarette butt. The concentrated nicotine is then integrated into the nest, and it keeps down the number of parasites that attack the bird chicks in the nest. So there's an example of a medicine that we've provided to other animals. <laughs> so this this is an active this is an active dynamic that's happening. There is like the example of the monarch butterflies that you gave at the beginning of the interview, which is this is an innate behavior 
And then there's this kind of learned behavior of the sparrows who are taking a relatively new Yeah, cigarette butts have not, I mean, sparrows don't live that long, but, you know, several generations for them, but still cigarette butts have not been around for more than 70, 60, 70, 80 years, maybe. I, I would need to look that up, but really not, you know, not that long to know, to, to somehow see the cigarette butt and then realize, oh, I smell or see or know. I mean, why? Maybe they tried it as as nesting material because it's all fluffy when they unroll it. But even the unrolling of it, I mean, it sounds. It seems so far fetched to make a guess of how this ended up in a nest and now its behavior. You can observe with many other finches to keep the microbes and and bacteria down that they don't want. I think I think it was sparrows, right? Oh, sparrows, yeah. yeah. It's both sparrows and finches, and and you you know you you've hit the the nail right on the head here. This is the power of learning. So learning can make things happen very much faster than evolution by natural selection. So organisms that have the power to learn have the power to investigate their environment. And birds are classic organisms for investigating their environment. Now, when I was growing up in Scotland, we had our milk delivered every day in glass bottles and in little foil caps. And some chickadees learned to, to peck through those foil caps <laughs> and steal the cream off the top of the milk bottles. That spread by other chickadees watching these ones, and that behavior spread incredibly quickly throughout the British Isles. And then for, for a while, you could go into hardware stores and buy little caps that you left out for the milkman, and the milkman would put that over the bottles to save your cream. So all of that happened literally within a few years. Now, there's no evolution by natural selection going on. What there is, is a foraging behavior. There is intense curiosity. There is sampling of the environment. And then there's learning. Very, very powerful. Well, it's interesting listening to you, and I'm I'm running this through my humanness. And when I am really sick, I you know all I want to do is sleep. I don't want to eat. And I'm sure there's a real biological reason for it why why that would be the best choice. Or drinking a lot lots of fluids only because I don't want any real food or heavy food. Whatever whatever my body suggests, but it is really coming from the messages that my body sends me and having practice to be fairly fairly sensitive to that, I can kind of read what I should eat or should not eat or when or how. This is a curiosity about life and the environment that I must say, as the human species, we, we might be one of the worst uh, species on this planet to have that behavior. It seems like we kind of, we approach life as we know, or, you know, we test it long enough until we find some kind of solution for a sparrow to learn that or for a chickadee to to get the cream and then it spreads to the British Isles, that's just incredible. It seems in a way a superior and quicker way to enhance the species than anything that I see in human behavior. Is that kind of your, your finding too? Well, we've done quite well, I think, as a species. <laughs> I'm glad you're our, saying <laughs> that. Please save us. You know, it's us. not as if our population is going down. Our population is, going, is still oh, going up. So we, we, we certainly can't say we're doing poorly. But I tell you what, there are certainly uh, plenty of societies in which this kind of testing of the environment and understanding of the medicinal parts of nature are still very, very uh, well understood. I, I, I was very fortunate a couple of years ago to spend some time in the Greater Kruger National Park, 
and I went out with a guide. His name was Sidwell, and, and Sidwell had been trained in the Shangan tradition of the local people and had a very, very acute understanding of medicinal plants. And going for a walk with Sidwell, you can imagine this leaving the lodge in Kruger National Park out into this sort of thorny scrub area in Africa with dozens and dozens of plants that I've never seen before in my life. And Sidwell could walk up to any plant. Pretty much every single plant had a story. And that story was either of great cultural significance or of significant medicinal properties. And so he showed me black monkey thorn trees that he'd seen elephants use, and, and their uh, tradition said that people could use to heal uh, stomach ailments. He showed me knob thorn trees that they used as aspirin. Pretty much every plant that we passed had some kind of purpose, many of them medicinal. So it's not like humans can't do that, or humans won't do that. It's just that perhaps in some cultures we've forgotten how to do it. And well, we want to talk about that much more. Sita yeah. <laughs> is eager to ask the next question, but we do need to take a little break. We're speaking with Mark Hunter, professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. If you Google Hunter Lab at University of Michigan, you find his amazing work. And uh, Mark, stay with us for just a moment. We'll take a quick break for Station ID, and we'll be right back with so many more questions. Um, this is an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helber. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. And we'll be right back with more. Stay tuned. Are you interested in making healthy food your profession? Bowman College is a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Their professional training programs prepare individuals for successful careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Study at one of four locations in California and Colorado or learn from home in a self-paced mentor distance learning program. Find out more about their classes on holistic nutrition and culinary arts at bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. Produce is ever-changing, seasons coming and going. At Earl's Organic, we have been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. Since 1988, Earl's Organic Produce has been establishing strong relationships with growers and developing a deep understanding of the seasons, so you can offer the most delicious organic produce to your customers, staff, and clients year-round. For organic produce, visit Earl's Organic Produce at earlsorganic.com. That's earlsorganic.com. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helber. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. And we are fascinated by the topic. <laughs> we kind of fascinated ourselves. Animals who self-medicate using nature to survive. That's our featured topic today. And we are speaking with Mark Hunter, professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Michigan. He's joining us today from Ann Arbor, Michigan, and again, Hunter Lab at University of Michigan. If you want to Google that, you'll find his absolutely incredible work. Mark, we ended with chickadees who told other chickadees to use the cream that wasn't of the, the milk last thing we were talking about. Actually, I'm still so <laughs> impressed by that behavior. Well, but yes, Sita. what was occurring for me in the last story, Mark, before we went to break, you were talking about your trip when you were in a national park in, in Africa. And Sidwell, your guide was telling you the stories of all of these plants that you passed and they had cultural stories and then they had medicinal stories that they were still, they were still being used for these medicinal purposes. And it occurred to me, this is a culture that spends 
such a, a greater portion of their time mm-hmm. outdoors. And one of the things that you said when we were looking at some of the animal case studies at the beginning of the interview is that there's this curiosity to interact with the environment. And then we were comparing and contrasting that with what we as humans do. It seems like we have a lot of curiosity to interact with our environment. Primarily right now, it's in the world of tech and media and social. And so maybe there's something to do, like when we look at these traditional cultures that are still interacting with plants, and we look at the animals who spend so much time in nature, that that's where it is. Is It's like we are not necessarily getting out in nature often enough to have these kinds of experimental case studies to then bring back and say, we learned about this kind of natural medicine. What do you make of that? I think that's probably right. You know, I think we've all heard people talk about nature deficit disorder. Um, And I think, you know, we do have this incredible curiosity. We have enormous ability to observe the environment around about us. And when that's channeled into video games, uh, you know, we we become very skilled at, at watching what's going on on a very small screen. If we take those same powers of observation and we move out of doors with them, I think we're capable of seeing incredible patterns in nature that can inform us about the way that animals use use medicine. There are people like the, you know, the Tongwe people in Tanzania who found a new diarrheal medicine by watching porcupines, that they noticed the porcupines had bloody diarrhea. And they thought, well, you know what, we sometimes get bloody diarrhea, let's watch and see what the porcupines do. And the porcupines dig up a certain kind of root, they consume the root, and now so do the Tongwe people. So they made that observation. They're intimately connected with their environment. They're watching other organisms behave. They take that information. They learn from it. And they incorporate it into their own society. I think we're all capable of doing that. We just don't get out enough. I wonder if if fear is playing a big role in that. I mean, I think that, at least for myself, I don't do a whole lot of experimenting out in nature, partially because I live in a big city, but also I think there's that, you know, well, what if something bad happens if I do that? I wonder if maybe human beings have a higher instance of fear as a demotivator than the animals do. Well, well, fear is a very, very good emotion. Let's, let's, uh, let's be honest. We, we all need just a little bit of fear. It, it keeps us healthy, and I don't think anybody would recommend that we run outside and start tasting every plant that we pass. Mm-hmm. I think cultures who live intimately with their environment may have that experience of watching other organisms do that, but also may have mechanisms, safeguards in place when they encounter new plants. I have a Native American student who works with me, Catherine Crocker, and in Catherine's tribe tradition, they had individuals who would try one plant species for its medicinal properties, and they would spread that uh, behavior out among individuals. So no one person was taking risks across all plant species. And so I think that's, you know, the couple of things, we certainly don't want your listeners running outside and and, and biting any plant that that (laughs) they come across. There are safeguards, and fear is a good thing. But if, uh, when humans have done this, I think, the chances are there have been very careful safeguards put into place so that people don't hurt themselves. Yeah, and in, in nature, you know, I'm, I'm hearing a different identification between nature outside of us, like really green nature, park, forest, you know, the natural environment. And, and yet I feel, of course, we are as much nature. 
And we, we often talk about humans and nature, and it's really, we are absolutely part of it. The milkman bringing the milk for then for a bird to understand that there's cream on top and then telling every other bird buddy how to harvest it and how to get that from the humans. That is all, all of nature communicating and, and working with one another, right? If we didn't get milk delivered as part of nature, the bird wouldn't know how to observe that and, and steal the cream as part of nature. So I just want to make sure we don't differentiate between humans and nature, but we are really doing this together. When it comes to technology, though, there is a place that we have created where nature is completely obsolete. And that is a, a weird or interesting environment to, I wonder what we still can observe or learn from from that, if the well, natural environment well, is not part of it. It's interesting that you say nature is obsolete, because of course, 50% or more of the drugs that are, are developed each year are new medicines that are developed are still developed from natural products, uh -huh. still developed from plants either uh, uh, that grow on the earth or, or in water or some bacterium or fungus. So we're still very good at extracting natural products from nature. What we tend to do now, which is I think quite clever, is we'll take the structure of those compounds. Imagine you're sitting on a, and, and looking at a computer screen now and there's a structure of a molecule in front of you, that molecule may be straight out of a plant. Uh, it, might be the, it might be the molecule that protects monarch butterflies from the parasites, the one we started talking about earlier. What we now have the ability to do is look at that molecule and say, well, I wonder if we tinker with that molecule a little bit. Can we make it more effective? Can we make it safer? Can we target it to a particular tissue in the human body rather than it being perhaps less specific in its mode of action. So that might be an appropriate use of technology in combination with nature for drug discovery. Yeah, it sounds like that is our part to learn from nature, using everything we can to to learn from it and refine it just as, you know, birds pick up cigarette butts because they want the concentrated nicotine. Um, whatever they have available to themselves for keeping their species as healthy as possible, it seems like the technology use for medicinals and making them better and more targeted is just as much our human capability of refining. Isn't, that, isn't there a parallel? I think there is. What, what scares me, to be honest, is the rate at which we're losing the green pharmacy from which we can develop new drugs. Mm. So when I see us losing the diversity of species on the planet, when I see us losing plant species, uh, bacterial species even, from the earth, what we're doing is losing potential medicines, medicines we don't even know about. And so, you know, we, we get, for example, you may have heard of rosy periwinkle, this incredible flower uh, from uh, the rainforest in Madagascar. turns out that this, this plant, this beautiful plant, produces two incredibly important anti-cancer drugs. One works against leukemia, the other works against Hodgkin's lymphoma. That part of the world where this plant grows is under such threat from deforestation that we run the risk of losing plants like that that we still don't know anything about. And I think we, we need drug discovery today at a faster rate than we've really ever needed it before. And while we need more and more drugs, we're losing the potential to find them at an accelerating rate as we lose species from the planet. 
I think that this interview and this type of conversation is so crucial to preventing that kind of a loss because you are an ecologist, so you're talking about the relationship between things and not not everybody looks at the world that way. They see it more as isolated incidents, like this affects tech and this affects medicine and this affects... But what you're saying is that these actions that have to do you know, with creating paper or creating more housing or whatever materials we're taking out of the forest, which is causing the deforestation, which is causing us to lose these potential medicines, which is jeopardizing our ability to heal diseases, is all connected. And it's this type of dialogue that's going to make people see the relationship and then make different choices. And I think that that takes us to the, you know, the last question we really wanted to get your opinion on, which is how can we human beings revitalize this um, tradition of looking to plants for natural medicine today in our own lives in order to promote greater well-being across all species? As far as I'm concerned, the most important thing that we can do as individuals is be very active in the conservation of natural areas and the organisms that, that, that those areas contain. A simple example would be that if we go into hospital today, for example, hospitals used to be one of the safest places you could go. You could get good treatment there and you felt safe in the hospital. I think most of us now have had a friend or a family member who's gone into hospital and ended up with an infection that was worse than the one that they went in with. That's why we need new drugs. We're getting incredible resistant strains of, of, of uh pathogens like multiple drug-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, for example. We've got resistance against TB. Where are we going to find the next generation of drugs to protect us from those resistant strains? Really, the answer is nature. We need to protect every potential source of new drug that we possibly can. We need to protect the diversity of plants on the surface of the earth. More of our drugs now are coming from marine and freshwater algae and bacteria and we need to protect those as well. So as people, really the best thing that we can do is be as active as we possibly can in the conservation of natural habitats and the incredible great green pharmacy that those habitats support. You are kind of the missing link in the debate on, on the environment, uh, Mark, when I hear you speak. And uh, again, this is Mark Hunter, who's joining us in this hour. We're pulling him off his incredible work, unfortunately, but fortunately for us and our listeners to talk about it. He's the professor for ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Michigan. Mark, when I hear you, you are the missing link in the conservation debate that is publicly being held. Because when we talk about preserving the Arctic or preserving the rainforest, usually it is portrayed at least as, um, you know, it's an important carbon sink and it's important for humans and it's beautiful. And who are we to destroy those species? You are actually saying that conservation of areas, diversity and species will define our survival as, as the human species, if I hear this correctly. I think there's very little question that we rely on nature and its natural products in very profound ways. And as we degrade nature and the availability of those natural products, we're essentially playing Russian roulette with our future pharmacy. That's lovely. Um, I just read a quote a couple of days ago. It says, to every problem, there's a spiritual solution. And I would add to that, to every problem, there's a biological solution, if I hear your 
voice and look at your work. That's incredible. Thank you so, so much for joining us in this hour. It was a real (laughs) honor, Mark, to have you on. I feel I, I don't really even have the words to tell you how much I learned and how much I appreciate what you brought to this conversation. I very much enjoyed chatting with you today. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you. I'm sure we we'll have you again. We look forward to talking yes. to you again. Yes, <laughs> and keep doing your amazing work. It is inspirational and it is saving lives. Thank you, Mark. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Again, that's Mark Hunter, Professor for Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, University of Michigan. Look him up at Hunter Lab at University of Michigan in this hour off an organic conversation, starting with animals who self-medicate using nature to survive, even us as animals, mm-hmm. <laughs> the human animals. Here, here. Every time we look at nature or we have nature as one of the focus points in this show, it blows my mind. <laughs> I, I find myself thinking about Ginger, who sent us that listener comment and, and just how the work she that learns. she's doing yes. and how like there's so much that we don't understand about earth science. Like if you're not working in it, it's hard to forget how connected everything is. So yeah. I'm grateful for all of the scientists in the world right now. And humans have an important role and we are great at observing and, you know, we, we can definitely do better understanding that whatever we kill is no longer there for us to observe or learn from. So, yes, using nature to survive, literally. And we are staying with the world of nature in forms of beautiful rows of organic vegetables in healthy soil. Here's what's in season. And now on the line with us, we hope, is Earl Herrick of Earl's Organic Produce, the premier distributor of all organic fruits and vegetables, the finest. Earl, are you there? Hello. Hello. (laughs) Hello, hello. Yeah, we we can hear you well. And we hear you are on the road. On the road again. Yes. I pride myself off the market, uh, (laughs) out of the warehouse, off of the market, and um, taking the opportunity to to visit um, one of the unique growers we've been able to do some business. I'm down the coast, uh, south of uh, Santa Barbara in Carpinteria. Oh. It's right on the coast. We're sure. just, I don't know, within five miles of, of one mile, one mile of the ocean. And we're going to be talk, talking to Eric today of the Whitney family. And um, blueberries is the crop. And I'm actually looking out right past over Eric's shoulder onto some blueberries right there. The plot which is, well, Eric's going to tell you about it. Okay. So Get him on I'm the phone. Hand off the phone right now, okay? <laughs> Put How him on, easy. Earl. <laughs> there that, that was easy. Hi, this is Eric. Hi, Eric. Hi, Welcome Eric. to the show. It's Helga and Sita in an, an organic conversation. Thanks for making the time. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. So, blueberries, what makes your farm so perfectly located? We're, we're about a mile from the ocean. We have a really mild climate zone along the Southern California coast. We get fog in the summer uh, oftentimes for a good part of the day. It keeps the temperatures down. It makes for some slow developing of the, uh, of the flavors in the blueberries, which is uh, nice. one of the things that makes, uh, makes a good quality blueberries. If they develop a little slowly, they have much more complex flavors. Sure. Don't, now, don't we find... all, right? <laughs> <laughs> I find this really fascinating. I mean, I think of blueberries as being a very springtime thing, but there are two blueberry crops. Is that what I'm hearing? Are you actually harvesting blueberries right now? 
We are. We have for, for a good month or so. In our particular area, we actually could pretty much have fruit all year round. The particular varieties that have been developed for you know, areas that don't freeze, because oftentimes people think of blueberries as, well, that's a northeast crop. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you need yeah. harsh winters for blueberries. Well, they develop some some varieties that do well in a much more uh, mild climate like ours. And so, yeah, we have enough fruit right now on our small operation to be going to farmer's market, and we send a, a small shipment to Earl. It's not regular. Uh, September isn't always uh, a good production month for us, but we have enough to eat ourselves. I have to say that that's, <laughs> that's really exciting because, you know, the holiday season is coming up and the idea of fresh blueberries, whether they're in a salad or in a blueberry pie, to me just seems like an ultimate luxury. We don't get a, a, a full crop every year. Uh, you know, the, the Mother Nature uh, sometimes, uh, you know, changes that for us. This year we happen to have a good crop this time of year. And it's nice. I mean, our first priority, other than other than for ourselves, for you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, <laughs> is to be able to serve our local customers at the at the farmers market because uh, they they come looking for us. They call the, the ranch. They mm-hmm. ask. We've got blueberries anytime, so uh, we love to be able to supply them. How do you pick for our listeners who who are picking blueberries? I always avoided that kind of grayish film on them until I learned on this show actually through Earl that that is what you want, right? Absolutely, yeah. That um, that white film is, is called the bloom and it's actually protection for the fruit that helps keep, uh, um, I think it, I don't know if it keeps the moisture off, it causes it to drip off, etc. to help keep them from, from rotting. It preserves them better for a longer period. You absolutely want that on your blueberries. And it's an indication of freshness. You like you don't need to dust it off or anything. It's not harmful. It doesn't have any flavor. Absolutely. It's an indication of freshness and, and minimal handling. If they if blueberries have been handled a lot, that, that film will be rubbed off and they'll be nice and shiny. Mm. And yeah, exactly. And that usually we're you know, we're trained to believe that that's what we want. But with blueberries mm-hmm. you want that kind of grayish hue on them when you see them in the store and of course they need to look perky and and if you don't eat them right away which maybe most listeners will as as we all do but how do you store blueberries best moisture for the most part is uh is the enemy our blueberries go from the field directly into a cooler within you know half hour hour or so um, in the picking process and they stay we we have a walk-in cooler and they stay in the cooler until we go to market or if we're shipping wholesale to somebody they're refrigerated the entire time and we found that uh, our blueberries will last for weeks kept refrigerated like that a little bit of airflow and, you know, dry refrigerated conditions is, is perfect. I hope very, very soon we'll get to taste the blueberries. You're welcome to come down visit anytime. Just give us a heads up. All right. <laughs> okay, deal. deal. <laughs> you sell as mm-hmm. Whitney Ranch. So if people see uh, Whitney Ranch blueberries, yep, that's the man, Eric, that's Eric, who's on the phone right now. <laughs> Thank you so much, Eric. Good luck with the rest of the season and happy holidays to you. And um, yeah, thanks for being on the show again. It was a pleasure. Thank you guys for working on this uh, this type of a program. It's wonderful. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely for us too. <laughs> Can you pass the phone back to Earl? Absolutely. Here he is. Thanks, Great. Thanks Eric. Eric. <laughs> well, there you go. Oh, See? my goodness. Their product is really well received. And, of course, it has that opportunity or that niche market that comes in. 
So um, sure, yeah, we just said great. the holidays are coming up, and oh, what a treat to have blueberries, whether that's in your in your sauce or in your in your cake or. You know, fresh blueberries yeah. on the just wonderful. <laughs> well, and the and that maple, they're maple, able yeah. to do it all so quickly and so freshly that it stores for a long time. So if you want to get it now right. or in the next couple of weeks, there's a chance you will still have them for the holidays. Yeah, Earl Herrick from yes. the Road of Earl's Organic Produce. That's earlsorganic.com. Right. Yeah. We'll have you back next week. You know it. I'll be on the road too. Okay, okay great. Good. Can't wait. Love it. Don't tell it. Love what it the is. Love we'll <laughs> Surprise us. Awesome. Be later. safe. Bye, Earl. Bye. Bye now. Uh, what a fun job to <laughs> drive to farms and taste produce. No, and what he does actually by, by going to small farms like this, he is supporting an area in economic viability that is completely overlooked often, right? The, yeah. the average family farm income last year was a negative $1,400 for the entire year. Mm. So small family farms don't make it economically. They're only in business because one of the spouses works off farm to support the farm, at least on average, negative yeah. $1,400. So by working with those farmers and creating those relationships and, and even having the flexibility as a business to pick produce whenever it comes in, because it's not every Friday at four o'clock, we'll fill the truck with 16 pallets of you know whatever the produce is and it's clockwork. No, this is nature. And the smaller you get, the more you allow nature to do its beautiful work. And that sometimes means there's product or there's no product. So hats off to all the small growers and then people like Earl people to work with that too. Growers. Yeah, really mm -hmm. incredible. And then ask to talk about Whitney it. Whitney Ranch, yes. blueberries. I am going to go find <laughs> me some blueberries. <laughs> yes, packed show, packed hour, nature all around, abundant. Happy holidays coming up soon. For. I feel like Plan I'm for it. already being early thankful for Thanksgiving, but... Gratefulness well, is you you are part of the species that just observed that there are domestic blueberries in in October. So I'm sure you, as a species, now will learn it and buy those and have them. I'm so planning see, on it. That's learned behavior I'm right on there. It. This is an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helmer, and I'm Sitarani Palomar, and we'll be back with another episode next week. See you then. <laughs> Bye. An Organic Conversation is a proud production of the Organic Media Network. Associate producer, Kristen Ponger. We are your hosts, Helga Helberg. And Sitarani Palomar. And we'll be back right here, same place, same time, next week. See you then. Bye.